Genesis 10, 1, and then we'll jump to Genesis 11, 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Han, Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Genesis 11, 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And the people migrated from the east, and they found the plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Verse 5, And the Lord came down and see that the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. So come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from over there, over the face of the earth. They left off the build, left the building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. It's been an incredible study over these last couple months. And, and Lord, today ends the, 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 the first section of the book of Genesis, 1 through 11. And Lord, thank you for all the lessons that we have learned and just reviving our passion for the beginning, in the beginning, God. And we get to see our, our heritage, our lineage that comes from uh, Adam and Noah and then, then these three sons and informs us on how you served and loved them and how you do the same today. That your mission, that your story of redemption has not changed, but is the same as in Noah's day as it is in ours. And so Lord, may we have eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. Lord, I thank you for this body, and I thank you for their generosity, not only to the crossing, but also with these little Operation Christmas Child gifts. Lord, and I pray that these gifts are going to go all over the world to children that are, are in need, that don't have much, that might look for their daily meals, will get a, a gift, and, and they'll get some toys, and they'll get some coloring books and crayons, and, and that will make them feel good. But more importantly, Lord, that what will be in there is the message of hope, the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And so, Lord, I pray that you continue to use um, this ministry, Samaritan's Purse, to, to reach people for Jesus through a simple offering as a Christmas shoebox with some toys in it. Lord, may the greatest gift be received, and that is the Son, your Son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Guys, go ahead and be seated. So yeah, I want to open up with a question for all you this morning. Who in here speaks English? Raise their hand. Go ahead, raise your hand, everyone. All right, good, good, all right. All participating, that's good, good. How about this one? Who in here speaks another language besides English? Please raise your hand. All right, a little hand for you more. How many of you speak more than two languages? Raise your hand. Anyone in here speak more than two? Okay, we got, okay, we got. All right, and more than just choice words in other languages, too, we're talking about, like real, real sentences. All right, so we got three. How about four? Anyone speak four languages in here? Four, Albert Chen? Five? Albert Chen? Nice. All right. You win a prize. All right. There we go. That's awesome. I, I, uh, I speak English, uh, sometimes, sometimes not as well as you guys know from up here. 
can, can blur. But I also grew up in, in high school, and I took, well, I grew up in Tucson, Arizona, so I spoke Spanish, at least some Spanish. There's sometimes we go across the, the border, and there were some words and some phrases that we wanted to know. Donde esta el baño? You know, where's the bathroom at? You know, we want to know that one, and some other words. But in high school, I said, well, I know I grew up in, in Tucson, and I got a bunch of Hispanic friends, and I love the language, but French is supposed to be a little closer, so I'm going to take French, right? One also because I thought I could get more ladies, to be honest with you, if I could speak some French. And so um, I took French, and our, our, our French teacher, Madame Bope, uh, made us pick um, our names, and we had to use French names. Well, there wasn't any French names for Aaron in the, um, in the, on the list for Aaron. So I had to pick a new list, and so I picked Robert, because I thought it sounded the sexiest, Robert, you know? And so that, that's how I picked my name, all right? Giving you a little insight to your pastor. Okay, but here we go. But in Genesis uh, chapter 10, 11, we're going to see the beginning of languages. But not only the beginning of languages, uh, but the beginning of the nations. And eventually what we'll see was that these nations produce for us the, the serpent crusher, the one that we've been longing for since Genesis chapter 3, who will save humanity from our rebellion to a future hope of a, a new heaven and new earth. And that's what we're going to look at today. So in Genesis chapter 10 is where we're going to begin. And the, the first uh, uh, point is the beginning of the nations. And this is the full chapter of Genesis chapter 10. I'm not going to read a bunch of these Klingon names right now because it would just be, it would be tough. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be good. So Genesis 10.1, these are the generations of the son of Noah, Shem, Han, and Jason. Jason. And over the past couple months, we've been going over the book of Genesis. And as we know that um, we began in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens of the earth. Genesis 1-1, page 1. And, and we know, as we said before, that the title of Genesis is Beginnings. And we've studied a number of new beginnings uh, in this book, in these first 11 chapters. In fact, everything on planet earth, including earth, had a beginning. The only thing or the only person that did not have a beginning was the triune Lord God. He always was, always existing. But He is the Creator. So we saw the beginning of creation. We saw the beginning of the land. And we saw the beginning of the oceans and the sky and the sun and the moon and the, and the vegetation and the animal kingdom and the, and the fish of the sea. We saw the beginning of seasons that we're experiencing right now. The winter, the summer, the fall. In the spring, uh, the beginning of humanity. We saw that with Adam and Eve. The beginning of, of work. God gave man a job to do in the garden. The beginning of marriage between a husband and a wife. The beginning of a family. The beginning of sin. Murder and death. And obviously, and most importantly, we saw the beginning of the gospel. As I said today, this morning we see the beginning of the different languages. We'll get to that in Genesis chapter 11. But right here in Genesis chapter 10, we have the beginning of the nations. Um, some call this the table of the nations. In Genesis chapter 11, from these three men, from these three men, come 70 nations here in Genesis chapter 10. Now, when you and I think of the word nations, we got to change our Western mindset because the word nations in the Bible is probably different than the way we talk about nations. When we talk about nations, we talk about nation states. Uh, United States of America, R- Russia, Mexico, etc. When we think of nations, we think of countries ruled by governments in a geographical specific area with boundaries and with constitutions. And that's when we hear the word nations. That's where our minds go to, nation states. Well, in the Bible, when we talk about nations, we're talking about a specific people group, not a place. 
not a constitution, but a people group. When you see the word nation in Genesis, again, it's talking about a people group. When we see the, the word nations in the New Testament, the, the word nation in the New Testament is ethnos, which we get the word ethnicity. So again, we're talking about a particular people group and not a place. So in Genesis 10, we see the nations begin. And again, there are 70 here. And again, notice that we're talking about people as nations. So let me highlight some of you. This is actually a fascinating, fascinating study. If you haven't studied Genesis chapter 10, I know it's just a bunch of names and we see it as genealogy, but take some time because this really will impact how we see the world today. As we understand Genesis chapter 10, it's going to help us understand the world we live in today. So we see this phrase three times that happens in Genesis, in, in verse 5, 20, and 31 in Genesis chapter 10. It, it kind of describes the diversity of these nations after the Tower of Babel. You see, before the flood, there is one nation. There is one people group. But after the flood, we see a diversity of nations pop up, a diversity of ethnicities that will come about. And this is all part of God's plan. What kind of holds this together is, again, these verses 5, 20, and 31, where it says this. These are the sons, and this Japheth and Ham and Shem, by their clans. That word clans just means families. Their language is multiple, and that's the distinction between these people groups. Again, it's not so much a place geographically, but it's a language that gives distinction to these people groups and their nations. These people, again, that come together with and create different cultures. And so let me highlight um, some of the nations that come out here. It's not going to be exhaustive, not going to cover all 70, but it's going to give us an insight of just, hey, these, these cities, these nations, these people groups still exist today and are prominent in our world history. So first we have Japheth. Out of Japheth, we see in Genesis 10, verses 2 through 5, come about 14 nations. 14 nations. So let's touch base. I have a map of, of, of all three of these. There we go. And these will give us kind. Japheth is going to be the red. And so when we talk about him, we're talking about kind of nations of the north, kind of Indo-European. These are the nations there. So we see that um, Japheth gave it to this, this man named Magog. Who is Magog? Magog would be modern-day Russia. We can, we can think about Ezekiel 38 and 39 when we talk about some of the, the great battles that were going to come. And Russia is, is Magog. And Ukraine and the Bulgarians, the Poles, the Croatians come from Magog. And then we have this guy we see in here, uh, Javan. Javan. Javan is where we get the, the Greeks, uh, the Romans, the Italians. Um, and then we see that Javan gave birth to a, a, a man named Tarshish. You guys remember who Tarshish is and where Tarshish might be? If you guys remember when we went through this, the book of Jonah, we said that, that Jonah wanted to flee and go to Tarshish. Where was that? Where did he want to go? Spain. So we think that might be the Spaniards would come from Javan. Uh, and then you have the uh, Ashkenaz. We see that. And this is the, the Germany area. If you're a big buff in, in World War II history in the Dispersa, where the Jews went to the north early on and they settled in, in, in Germany and in kind of northern France, you might have heard the Ashkenazi Jews. You might be familiar with that term. What well, comes from this, this guy right here. And then we have uh, this, this little thing, Madia. This is maybe India and Iran, uh, the, the Medes, the Persians, the Afghans, the Kurds. They come through this man right here. So that's Japheth, uh, 14 nations, nations of the north, Indo-European. Probably most of us in here come from Japheth. 
And then we have Ham. Ham, we see probably about 30 nations. 30 nations come from Ham. We see this in Genesis 10, 6 through 20. And these are kind of nations of the south, kind of in the, the green there. Uh, mainly kind of that Africa, North Africa and down. So we see names like Cush, and, and the son of Ham is Cush. And, and who is that? We, we, we've studied Cush throughout the Bible. Who, who that might be? Ethiopians, right? The Ethiopians, Sudan. Uh, Egypt is pretty explanatory. Uh, Egypt, all right? Uh, Put is probably modern-day Libya. And then you have Canaan. Canaan, we see as you go down, you see that there's a bunch of all these ites. There's the Jebusites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Termites. They're all in there, right? Um, no, Termites aren't in there. Good. But but that's like modern-day Lebanon, Lebanon and Syria and Jordan. And then they said the Sinites. The Sinites might be the Chinese. They might think that the Chinese came from this man, the Sinites, of this nation, the Sinites. So that's Ham, these 30 nations. And then you have Shem. Shem. And these 26 nations that come from the from Shem in his line, verses uh, 21 through 31. And then also in chapter 11, it ends with his descendants. And these are kind of the nations kind of in the middle there, the Middle East. And the big one there is, is obviously Eber. Eber. Eber is, is where the Hebrews came from. This is the Hebrew nation. This is the Jewish people, the, the nation Israel. And then you have Asher, and that's Assyria, and, and, and Turkey, and, and Iraq. And then you have Aram, which is, which is Syria. And, and, there's, and there's more there. But this is where it's neat when you study this. Because when we think of Iran and Iraq, we in the Western mind think, oh, they're the same people group. There's not much difference between Iranians and Iraqis. They're, they're the same, you know, the thing that unites them is obviously the religion Islam, but they're the same people group where in reality they are very different from one another. In fact, there's, a, there's reasons why these two nations can't stand one another and hate one another because they come from two different nations. Iraq comes from Shem, more than likely, and Japhet comes from I mean, and then Iran comes from Japheth, the Medes, the Persians. They speak two different languages. Iran speaks the, the Farsi language. Iraq speaks um, the language of Arabic and Kurdish. And so you can see how when we dive into Genesis chapter 10, it's going to help us see the world as the Lord created and as it should be. And we're not going to muddle nations together. And it's going to help us give explanation of why the world is the way it is. It's because of these relationships between the nations from the sons. And we also know, we talked, uh, touched base on about the, the curse of Cain, etc. in Genesis chapter 9. So these 70 nations form all the people groups that exist today. It began with Noah and his sons, and then it sprouted to these 70 nations through these men and, the, and their wives, and then it spread to all the people groups around the world today. So that means everyone in this room comes from one of these three men. We can all trace our heritage, our lineage, back to one of these three men. So what does that mean? It means we're all one big happy family, right? We're all related to one another. And there's some real practical aspects that, that, that flow out of this for us this morning. One is this, is that our, there's one sovereign king ruling over this world. One sovereign king, the Lord God, ruling over this world. We, we live in a world where we have <clears throat> excuse me, the UN, uh, these G8 summits, where the, the greatest eight nations come together and try and fix world's 
problems, right? They try to put their heads together to, to protect us, to, to, you know, take care of world hunger and health issues and all this stuff. And as we look at that, we don't see very much help, do we? We don't see very much, a lot of progress. What we see is chaos. What we see is more rogue nations. What we see is terrorists that spread up. What we see is the spread of nuclear weapons and chemical weapons. We see war and unrest. Uh, these guys and gals in the UN and these, in these countries aren't making that much of a difference. They're doing good. There's, there's some good things happening. Don't get me wrong. But again, it doesn't seem to be trending too upward. Why? Because we know that these leaders, when they come together, they, they're more worried about their own little worlds rather than the world. And they can't solve the world's problems when they're just focused on their tiny little kingdom. So there's really no hope. But as we understand Genesis chapter 10, as we understand that the Lord God created Noah and these three sons and he sent them out and he's the one that's orchestrating the 70 nations plus, we know that he's on his throne. Therefore, we can have a peace when we look at the world and we see all the chaos in the wars and rumors of wars. Remember, I quoted a couple weeks ago that there are 195 countries and 184 of them are at some kind of war. And we're like, where, where's the peace? Where's the hope? It doesn't seem to get any better. It's getting worse. But we know Proverbs 21.1 where it says this, The king's heart is in the stream, is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord, and he turns it where he wills. We know that it might seem chaos to us, but the Lord is in control and He's directing all these nations for a purpose. And that purpose is for our good and for His glory. So that's number one. Our sovereign King rules over the earth. Second thing we see in this beginning of the nations is that since we all are one big happy family, since we all come from the line of Noah via and Adam, there's no room for racism. There's no room for treating people that look different than us and talk different than us as subhuman. As is there some master race or some superior race out there. And I hate to use that word race and racism because I think that actually adds to the problem. Uh, when we talk about race and racism, when we talk about there are several different races because the Bible says there's only one race. It's the human race. And then when we talk about differences in language and ethnicity, we're talking about ethnicity, we're talking about people groups, but we're all the human race. Acts 17, 26 says this, and God made from one man every nation, every people group of mankind to live on the face of the earth. The King James and the New King James, even though it's not in the, in the original language, says God made man from one blood, one blood. And man, if we could kind of shed light on that, in our circles of influence, when we talk about people and their prejudices, when we talk about race, let's change the word to the biblical word, especially if you're teachers in here or college professors, you have an incredible opportunity to change the dialogue and make it more productive by taking that word race out or, or, or redefine and say, hey, we're all of the human race. There's one race, but there's different ethnicities. That's what makes us different. So let's, let's pave the way in here as the crossing church, as God intended it, that you can have these dialogues with people that don't believe in Jesus and you can help them think correctly about humanity and God's original design. So because God created these nations and we're all related, there is no room for racism. I hate that word, but you guys get what I mean. So again, let's be a light in the public discourse and turn people's speech back to 
a good speech, a right speech, a proper speech that brings glory to his name and brings honor and dignity to all of us as the human race. So here we see the beginning of the nations. Next, let's go to number two. We see the rebellion of the nations in Genesis chapter 11. So now we're in Genesis chapter 11 in verses 1 through 9. A familiar story, the story of Babel. Verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. As people migrated from the east or eastward, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. So we see these people, this group, this, this, this caravan, so to speak, of people, they, they settle in Shinar, which would be, uh, probably modern day Turkey, kind of a little bit southeast of Baghdad. We know that this, this city Babel later becomes Babylon. And Babylon, as we know our scriptures, as we read throughout the scriptures, that Babylon becomes one of the, one, if not the greatest enemy of the nation, Israel. Babylon. And we see that this guy named Nimrod in Genesis 10.10 was the founder, the king, the leader, the the builder of Babel. But not only Babel, but also Nineveh. And that city, Nineveh, became Assyria. So Assyria also became probably the second biggest enemy of the nation Israel. So we see that this guy Nimrod took this nation Babel and made it an enemy of Israel. And what we see also here is this united movement, this, this, par- this people, this caravan migrating or came from the east and they're moving eastward. And as you guys recall, as we've been studying the book of Genesis, whenever we see that phrase that people were moved east or eastward, it's, it's illustrating the point that the people are moving away from God. When you see that phrase, when it says that the, these people are migrating from the east, they're moving eastward, it, it means that these people are moving away from the presence of God. You remember in Genesis chapter 3, when, when Adam and Eve sinned, God kicked them eastward out of the garden. In Genesis chapter 4, when you remember when Cain uh, murdered his brother, we see that, that God moved him eastward, east of Eden, away from his presence. And here, we see it becomes apparent as we move on in the story that this is exactly what's happening as well. These people are moving eastward. More importantly, these people are moving away from God. Verse 3, we see this, this new modern advancement in technology. And they said one to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had a brick for stone and a bitmen for mortar. So they, they create this new technology called the brick. I mean, think about that for a second. Can you imagine living back in that day where we look at modern advancement and it's a brick? I mean, how cool would that be to live in that day, right? Compared to all of our modern advancements now that we see. How would Christmas be back then for some of, for you young kids out there? Here you go, son. I've got you a brick for Christmas, right? Well, what we also see, though, is even this good gift, this brick to, to make buildings, when in the hands of sinful people, can be used a way to rebel against God. So the, the, the thing, the good gift, whether it's a plane, a car, a gun, medicine, is not the problem. The problem is the human heart, the human soul that's moving away from God. And we use these good gifts that God gives us as a way to rebel against Him. So we see that they start this building with this brick. Now verse 4 tells us how they moved away from the Lord. First we see that the, the root of their rebellion is pride. Is pride. That's the heart of almost every sin is, is, is pride. Verse 4, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city 
and a tower with its tops to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. If you were to do a study for you English majors, the simple sentence of verse 4 is this. Come, let us build and let us make a name for ourselves. That's the thrust of verse 4. And isn't that the essence of pride? The essence of pride for all of us is to exalt one's name, to lift ourselves above and beyond everyone else so that everyone sees our name in neon nights and everyone else is subservient to that. The desire to, again, separate ourselves from the pack, this pride. I love this quote. I read it this this week. It once said this, Pride will be the longest distance between two people. Pride is the longest distance between two people. Think about that for a second. Meditate on that, that quote. Think about the people that you're at odds with right now and why that is. I think if we all kind of boiled it down, we would see it's pride. It's pride. That's why there's a distance between most of us. Well, they don't see things my way. They didn't do that correctly. They didn't do it the way I would do it. They're not meeting my needs the way I need them met. Right? Anyone in here? Is that not like a good reality? Is not that true? Pride will be the longest distance between two people. We know it was pride. The first sin was, was pride. That's what caused Satan to fall. I mean, I mean, Satan wasn't up in heaven, you know, sacrificing angels, right? He wasn't up there doing that. He wasn't selling angel dust to other angels in there, right? That's not how he was sinning. No, it was pride. Isaiah 14 gives us a glimpse into this with five I will statements. Oh, how you have fallen, oh, day star, Lucifer, Satan. I will set... This is, this is now him speaking. I will set ascent to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly. I will send above the heights. I will make myself like the most high. That's what caused Satan to fall was his pride. It was his pride in the first sin. It's the pride here at Babel. And it's, 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 it's always pride. It's pride that we battle with today. So that's number one we see. And secondly, we see their pride leads to more disobedience and ultimately idolatry. Again, verse 4. Then they said, come let us build a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. We recognize, now this is amazing, in Genesis chapter 9, God gives Noah and his family the same uh, command, the same cultural mandate to go and be fruitful and multiply over the face of the earth, right? We notice that the, 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 the command, God's desire, his plan doesn't change after sin. It's, it's the same. Now think about that command for a second. I mean, think about that. For you, go and be fruitful and multiply. Who doesn't want to keep that command? I mean, I look at that command, I'm like, that actually sounds like a great time when we really boil that command down. I mean, it says, hey, get married, make love to your spouse, have some kids, and go travel the world. That's in essence what that command is saying. Who's not, who's not up for that? I'm up for that, right? I mean, it's awesome. But the people ignore the command. They, they, they're disobedient because they are all congregated in one city. For the very purpose, it says, for not being dispersed over the face of the earth. That's why they are congregating. It's because they don't want to go over the face of the earth. They, they look out there and say, man, there's a lot of unknowns out there. Therefore, for self-preservation, for self, 
salvation, we want to stay in this one city and not move out. But the Lord, again, wants his image bearers to spread out to the north, the south, the east, the west, not stay in one, to fill the earth with his image bearers and spread the love and the grace and the mercy and the joy that is found in the Lord. And see, the point is, living in the city is not, is not the sin. That's not the, that's not sin. Living in the city is not the sin. We all live in the city. It's, 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 they, 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 they put the city as what would be the thing that would run their life, would rule their life, that would protect their life. If they said, hey, let's, let's, let's stay in the city, let's, let's grow, let's, let's, let's fulfill the cultural mandate and then send people out, that would be good. But instead, again, their intent was to be safe and secure in one spot and not to leave. Human autonomy, taking care of themselves. But it even gets worse than that because not only did they disobey God's cultural command to go and be fruitful and multiply, but they built their own temple for worship. Idolatry. Most commentators take that tower with its top to the heavens to be more than just uh, a, a landmark, a city landmark, but more importantly, a tower of worship. One called it a celestial tower to their own name to show off their own ability to say, look what we can do on our own, God. We can build this tower. We don't need you. We're safe and secure here. What's kind of cool, a little fact, as you look at archaeologists, they have discovered in this area, this Mesopotamian area, that these towers were made of mud bricks, and they called them ziggurats, these ziggurat towers, these towers, these pyramid-like things that would be a place where people would congregate to worship. The biggest one was found in Babylon, where this um, people group uh, settled, recorded to be about seven levels high uh, and reached nearly a, a height of a nearly 300 feet. So they rebelled not only by not creating, uh, fulfilling the commandment, but then all of a sudden creating their own religion, a religion of self-worship. So therefore, we see God's judgment come down. We see this rhythm throughout Genesis chapters 1 through 11. God gives the command, his spoken word. And when that command is followed and obeyed, what happens? There's blessing. But when that command is disobeyed, there is, there is judgment, there is justice. That's part of the covenant. And we see in the midst of their pride and rebellion and idolatry, the Lord brings judgment against the people of Babel. And he does that by, they were speaking one language, uh, unified and, and building this tower. So he comes in and his judgment is confusion and disunity by changing the people's speech. And so now they couldn't understand each other and therefore they, they were unable to finish or build this tower. We see this in verse 11 of chapter uh, verse 7 of chapter 11. Come, let us go down. Now, that right here is a little play on words. We see a mention kind of the Trinity here, probably let us, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the one God revealed here, go down. It's a play on words. It's, it's the Lord condescending because people are saying, hey, let us build this great tower. And the Lord's like, well, I'm up in heaven. I can't even see this tower. So I got I to gotta come down to you to see this little speck that you are building and confuse their language they might not understand each other's speech. The Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth and they left off the building of the city. So we see in their pride they wanted to live for the glory of self, to make their own name great and not for the glory of God. Now we got to pause and say, how relevant is this passage for us this morning? How relevant is this passage for us this morning? Because what it does is it shows that not much has changed in the human condition, has it? Not much has changed in the human heart. We are still about me, myself, and I. 
That's what rules our heart apart from Christ. Augustine, one of the great early church leaders, wrote this great book called The City of God. If you haven't read it, I'd commend it to you. It's a great, great read. And Augustine said this. He said the, 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 uh, in the book, there are two cities that are being formed by two loves. The earthly city by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, and then the heavenly city by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. This is what it looks like. The former in a world glories in itself, the latter in the Lord. For one seeks the glory for men, but the greatest glory of the other is God. One lifts up its head in its own glory. The other says to its God, thou art my glory and the lifter up of my head. And it goes on. We can see ourselves in those words. We have the same struggle, don't we, as they did in Babel, as in Augustine's time. You see, the bottom line is, is that there's two ways to live, for the glory of self or the glory of God. Making a name for yourself out there in the world or making a name for God. This question to you and me this morning is important. The question is this, what empire are you serving? What empire am I serving? Where is my allegiance? What kingdom holds my allegiance? What kingdom holds your allegiance? The kingdom of self or the kingdom of God? I think if we're all really honest right now, it vacillates in between both, doesn't it? There are times where I'm I'm full-on living for the Lord and I'm thinking about Him and His kingdom and building it. And there's other times where I'm like, no, I want to build the kingdom of Aaron. And as we look over our life, Lord willing, and if you're in Christ and controlled and impelled by the Holy Spirit and formed by His Word and in community, you will see that the overarching theme of your life is living for the kingdom of God. But we must understand that no one does it perfectly and we do have these tendencies to live for self. And so let's, let me just, just, let's just dive in a little bit here because this is so crucial to the human condition and our separation from the Lord. And if we don't get this, we'll miss our need for a Savior. But if we get this, we'll see our need for a Savior. And Jesus' life, death, and resurrection will become a beautiful picture of grace and mercy to us. As I already said, I have to battle this temptation daily. The, the, the building of Aaron's kingdom, the exaltation of myself, In particular, here at the crossing, as a pastor, I have to guard this because my temptation is to make my name great among you people. I want you guys to think, man, we got the greatest pastor, right? He's the best ever. That that creeps into my mind. I want to make my name great among the network church pastors, that they all come to me when we want to talk about church planning or leadership or etc., I gotta fight that temptation or, or, or make the crossing great among the nations. And that's something I gotta fight on a daily basis. What is the motivation of my own heart? And the reason why I do what I do? Do I want to make a name, the Lord's name great or my name great? And you have to ask yourself the same question. You, you battle with those same things as well on a daily basis. So let me give you just two quick tests to honestly assess where you might be leaning this morning. First, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said this, who said this is a dominant characteristic of pride manifest in your your life. Building up your own towers is that of jealousy. Are you a jealous person? When, When you see someone else have bigger towers than you, does that make you rejoice or does that make you go get a little frustrated, a little angry? 
They're like, I got to work harder. I got, I got to beat that person. You're always in a competition with someone. And listen, the competition could be your spouse, could be your classmate, could be your coworker, could be your family. But jealousy, is that, is that a characteristic that motivates you? C.S. Lewis says if that's one of your characteristics, the, it might be just a, a, a tell-all of your heart and, and pride in building your own kingdom. The second one is busyness. I hear this all the time. This is probably the number one excuse I hear about why people don't get involved in life groups or, or aren't consistent on Sunday morning or getting a discipleship group is because I'm just too busy. I'm just too busy. I, I don't have time. I just don't have the time. This also is a tell-all sign that it's all about you and building your own kingdom. Um, <laughs> I, could, I could tell you how pride gets in my own heart on this one as I'm asking this question. It's like, hey, hey, man, I, I come to this young couple, two people, young couple, you know, just get married. It's like, hey, you get, get Sunday mornings, life group. Like, oh, man, we just don't have time. And I'm thinking, like, I got seven people I got looked after. How do you not have time with just managing your own, you know, your own two little lives? That's just pride. It's just pride in my own heart. See, the problem isn't that we don't have enough time. That's not the problem. We all in here have enough time to build God's kingdom. The problem is, is where we place our priorities, is where we place our commitments. It's not about time. It's about our priorities and, and, and where we place them. And if you see yourself placing not having time or not being consistent on Sunday mornings or getting in a life group or journey group or getting into Bible studies or going to TLC or going to man school, it just might be an indicator that you might be living for more than just God's glory. Um, I see people all the time in this church that don't have time to, again, go to life group, go to, and, and I'm talking to myself, this is, this is convicting, that's good. But they can go to add more business meetings. They can add more hobbies to their life. They can add more vacations to their life. They can add more, you know, family become a thing that takes away from building the kingdom. And I get busyness. I get busyness. The Santinis are a busy family. And that's one thing that I want to always guard against, that our busyness doesn't take us away from investing in the kingdom of God. I don't want that to happen. I get, hey, I get their seasons of life. I understand about seasons of life. I understand about getting married. I understand about having kids. I understand about starting new jobs. I mean, we had five kids in seven years. I understand busyness. And again, we always, I understand there, there might be some small seasons, but don't let them be lifelong seasons or prolonged seasons. So the Lord this morning might be, just, just check your life. Just ask the Spirit to, to check your heart if, you're in here as you're single and, uh, or if you're spouse, check it with your spouse. Hey, do we need to be doing more? Do we need to check our schedule and see where all of our time is going? Because again, the problem isn't time. The problem is our commitments and our priorities. That just might be a tell sign. So those are just two that we see back in Babel that we also can see in our life. And so as we end here in chapter 11, this is kind of the last chapter ending in here. We says the Lord disperse them over the face of the earth. So we see kind of this downward spiral that we've been talking about since Genesis chapter 3 come to some of its lowest points. Again, the people that were called to be image bearers and proclaim His name and His message over the world are in fact rebelling and setting up new religions of self-worship. So the question that automatically comes to us is like, is there any hope? Is there any hope? And that takes us to point three, the salvation of the nations, the salvations of the nations. 
Again, Genesis could really be split up into to two parts. Chapters 1 through 11 is known as primeval history, and chapters 12 through 50 is patriarchal history. And here we're just ending the first half. And in Genesis chapter 11, it says, it tells us that the, the description of the world is confusion. It's confusion. And then in Genesis 11.32, we see that all of a sudden it starts to focus on this family of Terah leaving Ur and setting up their lives in Canaan. And we might be, as we walk through Genesis, as we know, we've gone through a couple big mega stories. And when we ever see God's judgment, we also see God's grace right there. His mercy is right there. So we might be asking ourselves, and in, in, in here in Genesis 11, it's like, well, where's the grace of God? Where's the mercy of God in this chapter? Because I know when Adam and Eve, when they sinned, uh, he promised the gospel, the serpent crusher to come and take care of the serpent. He clothed them to hide their shame. When, when Cain sinned, Cain was worried about his life, and God said, hey, I'm going to put a mark on you. No one's going to touch you. And if anyone touches you, I'm going to harm them. And then he, we see they saved Noah from total depra- the totally depraved world and his family. But where's the grace in chapter 11? And this is where we step back and we see that the grace in chapter 11, the end of this story, begins in chapter 12, as we know, through this family of Terah, in particular through this man, Abram. We know that this man, Abram, becomes Abraham, and he becomes the father of the nation of Israel. And throughout the rest of the redemptive story in Genesis, from Genesis chapter 12 onward, this story focuses on Abraham's line, the nation Israel, because we see it's through this line, through this nation, that God will send the serpent crusher, Jesus Christ. And so grace is actually the rest of the Bible, is the rest of the story for you and for me. That's where the grace is, and it will be unpacked until we get to the very end of Revelation where we see this, this reversal of Babel during the day of the day of the Lord. And we all, of every tribe, every tongue, and every nation are sitting with Jesus at the marriage supper in the Lamb in chapter 19 of, the verse of, uh, chapter 19 of, the verse of Revelation. As you guys recall, I, I taught through Zephaniah a couple, I don't know, maybe a couple months ago. It might have been sometime this last year. I don't know exactly when. Um, Zephaniah 3, it talked about the day of the Lord and this, this end time where this reversal of Babel will happen. So Zephaniah, this prophet, is, is saying, hey, there's a future. He's, he's prophesying that there's going to be a reversal of Babel. We see in Babel there's nothing but confusion because of all these different languages and, and, and mankind has spread. In the day of the Lord, he's going to change that and reverse Babel and bring everyone back together and he's going to change their speech to one speech. And it's a pure speech. Zephaniah 3.9 says this, For at that time, that the, the time of the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them will then call upon the name of the Lord. This is going to be an incredible scene. It's going to be a pinnacle of the grace of God and the gospel of God in our lives. We see kind of initial fulfillment of this in Acts chapter 2, right? Of Pentecost where we see in Acts chapter 2, and they just celebrated the Passover, so all the Jews migrated from all the world there. They come from every single nation, Acts, 20, uh, Acts chapter 2 says. And all the nations are gathered there, and they're all speaking their multiple languages. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and boom! Everyone can understand one another, even though they're all speaking in their different languages. They are all understanding what all these different languages are saying, and they're declaring about the power and the glory and the goodness of God. And so we'll see this little bit of this fulfillment of this 
this um, reversal of Babylon of, of Babel in Acts chapter two, but it ultimately will find its fulfillment in Revelation, the day of the Lord. And this is what's so exciting. If you're in Christ, if you repent of your sins, you trust in Christ, you see your need for a Savior, you see it's found in Him, you can't work for it, you can't earn it, you can't pair it, you recognize that you, you're, you're sinners, you're rebelling against the Lord, but He has provided a Savior through Christ and you repent and trust in Him. On that day, you and I will see and get to experience this very thing, the reversal of Babel. That's going to be awesome. I mean, stop and think about that. When, when the Lord gathers all of his people, all the different nations, ethnicities, the languages, and we all get together and we're praising the Lord in those tongues, we'll be able to understand one another. Yo, you and I will understand Spanish if we don't speak Spanish. Uh, Farsi if we don't speak Farsi. I mean, all the different languages will be praising the Lord. We will be there experiencing that. And not only that, but we'll be experiencing a place that is without sin, that is without pride, that is without disobedience, that is without idolatry. Who's looking forward to that day? I'm looking forward to that day. I don't know about you, but I got, that's a party I want to go to, and I know you do as well. So that's what we see the grace of God in the Tower of Babel because it points us to the rest of the story. And that's how we read our Bible. This is not a, a, a book of multiple different stories. This is, a, this is a story about one story. And it's about the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus. So this is your story and, I st- and my story. Jesus is the hero. He is our Savior. And so I don't know about you, but I look forward to that day because right now we're living in that already not yet. We're living in that time where, well, yeah, Acts chapter 2 was behind us. so We didn't get to experience that, but we haven't experienced what's going to happen on the day of the Lord yet. We're kind of in this in-between mode. And so what that does for me in my heart is that, man, we need to pray and meditate and do what it says at the last verses of the book of Revelation. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Because we long for that day where Babel is reversed. And we are with the King of kings and the Lord of lords, with all the nations, praising him in the language that he gives us. Amen? Let's pray.